Uh, greetings to everybody uh, in Medina, Ohio. Uh, greetings to the Columbus, Ohio congregation who may or may not be watching this today. See, I haven't seen them since before the, first, the last time I was here. I've been on the road for about six weeks now. But I'm alive. And <laughs> Angie's not lying to you. I'm still around, so I will be back uh, just in a couple weeks. So uh, greetings to everybody, and um, it is a wonderful pleasure and an honor to take some time out and to get around and spend some time with what I would consider my extended church family. We all have become an intricate part of each other's lives, have we not? And I tell you, it's, uh, it's just good to be among people of like mind because we spend so much time in the world that it can be a little bit discouraging. It can be a little bit frustrating sometimes, can it, living in this world. Knowing what we know and given the perspective on life that we have been given through the Christological lenses that we have been given, sometimes this life is hard to live in because we are so beleaguered by the things that bombard us day in and day out. I hope I'm not the only one. I say that a lot. I hope I'm not the only one. And be, I want to interject here. I want to I thank whoever put this fan up here. I love you, whoever did this. Thank you. Thank you so much. These lights get hot up here, but I may just take some time and do this a little bit if you guys don't care. Okay. But life kind of gets to us sometimes. Situations, circumstances, hardships and trials, and it's hard to maintain this Christian focus on what lies ahead. Because we live in a, a world that is everything about here and now, from fast foods to instant news, we have everything at our fingertips in an instant, so sometimes it's hard to get this future perspective and to keep it, because we are flesh and blood, and we want instant gratification. We want things here and now, and I don't know about you, I'm pretty sure I think I do though when I say this, you are looking forward to the kingdom of God, and you'd rather have it sooner than later. That's where I'm at. Now we know there's a whole host of things that happen between now and the return of our Lord and Savior, the Christ, that isn't going to be so pleasant. But when I think about the kingdom of God, and I think about what it has to offer all of us, I can't wait. I can't wait because this life just seems to drag us down sometimes. Anybody have anxieties? Anybody have problems in life? You know, there's a promise that our Lord and Savior gave to us. Not only the promise of a future resurrection and immortality as long as we stick with the program, but he made a very interesting statement. He said, tribulations will come. It's a part of this life. Turn with me, if you would please, to Genesis chapter 6 as a predicate scripture. Now, some of you may have heard this before, this, this sermon, I don't know. Um, I delivered this at the Feast of Tabernacles this year, but I want to do this also for an Armor of God program that I'm planning that's, that's coming up. But I think it's, it's relative, no matter if you've heard it or not. If you've heard it, please stay, because I didn't get to get to some things at the Feast that I'm going to get to today, so it's going to be fresh anyways. But there is something here in Genesis chapter 6 that I want to get to as our predicate scripture that's going to lead us in, into something else, Okay. There were giants on the earth in those days. And also afterward, 
No, excuse me. I'll, let me back up. I jumped ahead. Verse 1. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. That was changed later on to, to 70 years, and if by reason of strength, 80 in Psalms 90 and verse 10, if I remember correctly. But the point of the fact is here, our life is limited. Our time is limited. Our focus ought to have a certain perspective on it, and it should be future-oriented. Now, continuing here, because there is a theological train wreck that I want to address here that some people get into. And I hope I'm not going to step on any theological toes today, but there is something that I want to get to before I get into the spiritual analogy of this. There were giants on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now, some people say, here we go, this is the Nephilim. This is what the fallen angels did when they came down from heaven, you know, the, the third of the, the, the demons that came down with Satan. People will tell you that what they did was, as they had adult relations with women, offspring were born to them, and there are literal giants on this earth. We don't believe that, do we? I hope we don't believe that. Giants are met metaphor, hyperbolic language for mighty men of renown, perhaps people who lived beyond the 120 years, people who were powerful and mighty. Some of them were very abusive, by the way, to the people around them, out of control, brought trepidations, anxieties, all kinds of hardships to people around them. But we have to realize here what God is saying, their time was limited. You know, Jesus told us that in the resurrection, we'll be like the angels. They're not given a marriage, and guess what else they cannot do? They cannot reproduce. Angels do not reproduce. They are not physical. They are spiritual. They can only appear in the physical. They're not physical. They have no, no what's that, deoxyribus nucleic acid, DNA. They've got no DNA structure. They're spirit. Ask me to divine spirit. That, that's a tough one. Can anybody define spirit? The only thing I can say when I, when I think of the definition of spirit, that which is not subject to the physical laws. That's the best I can come up with. I really don't know what it is. It's not this. It's not, thank God it's not this, literally, not in vain. I want this done. I want this over with. We get old and things get difficult, does it? doesn't it? All the people on the prayer list, it really does. But this physical example of these mighty men, men of renown, serves as a spiritual example for us. Because even though these giants aren't really giants, that's not to say we don't have giants in our life, these metaphorical giants, that stand between us on this road in a pursuit to the kingdom of God. There are real spiritual giants that we all have. Things that get in our path that want to block our efforts the one to stand between us and the reality of God's kingdom. It could be a person, it could be a situation, it could be a sin, a tribulation, a trial, it could be almost anything. 
What's our perspective in this life? Over here, if you would please, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, because there is a scripture here that I want to get to. Let's start with the perspective, and then we'll get what's in between. In verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Don't think beyond today. What he's saying, what he's saying is get day by day. Get through day by day. Whatever it takes, maintain this perspective of the kingdom. Do not let people, circumstances, or trials dictate your attitude in life. If we have this perspective that there's something better to come that lies ahead, we do believe that, don't we? That there's something that is better to come, a better way of living, a better way of loving, a better, just a better way in general. And we've seen enough of the bad examples in this world. I'm tired of the news. It's just full of all kinds of nonsense and it's full of all kinds of negativity because that's what sells, if it's even real. Fake news. We live in a time now where our free press thinks that freedom means it's okay to lie. And we're not getting real news anymore. We're getting lies. We're getting lied to. Half the things, or three quarters, or even 90% of the things that we hear on the news when we turn on the TV, it's not even real. I never thought I'd see these days. I'm glad that there's one that has sounded forth his voice as a trumpet, and it is the voice of truth and wisdom, and it contains no error. Everything that we believe here in the Scriptures, everything that Jesus told us, whether in the Old Testament or New Testament, is going to come to pass. And if we don't believe that, we better get ourselves assured of it quickly. Because things and circumstances want to rob us of our crown. And I'm not playing chicken little here. I'm not trying to get us to worry. On the contrary, I'm trying to get us to be encouraged today. No matter what giant lies in our path. Now, right before Jesus says this statement, right before he makes this statement that all these things shall be added to you, he lists all these different things that worry us in life. The pursuit of money, what clothing we shall have. I'm not saying that these things don't have pertinence or relevance in our lives, but there should be a balance that we should strike. And not just for the sake of balance. I've heard people say that before in God's church. Well, I only keep the Sabbath maybe once or twice a month because I need balance in my life. Well, that's going to get us off balance. Sabbath services and assembling with people of like mind, that's what brings balance to our lives. Without this, we're out of kilter. I remember just a... Uh, man, i got to think about this now because I've been away from Columbus so long. 
But we had to cancel church because we had uh, an ice storm. And it was pretty boring, honestly, being at home, not seeing the people that we love and we see week to week and we cherish and we, we appreciate the opportunity to come together. And before I knew it, I'm sitting there in my chair and I just started my own business recently. So I'm sitting there and, okay, I did this, did that, what else are to do? And before I know it, my mind gravitated towards business. How can I increase my profit? And I had to stop and say, wait, this is not what this day is about. But you see, that's why God gives us this day, because he knows that if he didn't give us this day, we would work seven days a week and we would forget all about him. And I had that lesson taught to me or relearned to me again just because I had to stay home from the Sabbath day. But he lists all these different things. Laying up treasure for ourselves, which um, rust and moth destroy the pursuit of money, all these different things. What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? And he's saying, good guys, quit worrying about it. I'm going to take care of you. It's not always the way we like to think that he's going to take care of us, but he does take care of us. You know, God allows us to go through trials. He allows the trials to come, but there's a perspective that he wants us to have, and that is the pursuit of the kingdom of God. Now, we need to get rid of whatever stands between us and that reality. You see, because what he's talking about here in Matthew, it may not be in, in so many words, but really what's underneath here is he's talking about the development of our character. That's really what it is about character development. There are a lot of things that we go through in life that we struggle with. Maybe it's a sin, a circumstance, Whatever your giant is, because we all have our giants. Every one of us has one. There's not one of us that doesn't have one. Maybe more than one. The giants will fall eventually. You see, a giant always falls. They don't live forever. There are two numbers in the scriptures that are very relevant to us as Christians. I'm not going to give you the one that's truly relevant just yet. But anybody remember the number 40 in the scriptures? Think about the number 40. It could be 40 years. It could be 40 days. But over and over and over and over, through this, over 50 times actually, in our scriptures we are told that the number 40 is very significant because it personalizes and it defines our tribulations. But our tribulations do not define us, or they should not define us. They should make us better people. That's what the tribulations and trials are for in this life. And we'll get to that here in just a little bit. But he says all that. We got to get rid of whatever's between us and the kingdom, whatever our giants are. You know, there was a man that lived actually not too long ago uh, in history. His name was Sir Isaac Newton. Anybody recognize that name, Sir Isaac Newton from, from class? Well, he made a very famous, uh, by the way, he was a Christian man. Probably one of the few scientists who have lived that looked at creation and looked at the laws of nature, as, as mankind has called them, and came to the conclusion that there is a God. Do some research on Sir Isaac Newton. Very, very very humble 
very acknowledging man regarding our Creator and who's really behind all of this. Amazing study. But he made, he made a wonderful statement here. Because in our pursuit of the kingdom and who we look to as the foundation of our faith and our perspective, I think this quote fits very perfectly. He said, if I see further, if I see more clearly, I've heard it put two different ways here, it is only because I have stood upon the shoulders of giants. Very relative statement. He was giving credit to the men who have went before him, who taught him and mentored him, and said it's because of those giants, their shoulders I stood upon, that I stand here with the perspective that I have now. Whose shoulders do we stand upon for our perspective? You see, most of the things that we deal with in life, let's just be honest here, our giants in our life, I've created more giants than the giants that come out of the left field, out of nowhere. I'm good at making giants in my life. I really am. Cause my own problems. Can anybody associate with that? We can, can't we? It's often this my mouth that gets me in trouble. We don't stop and think about what we're about to say. We're emotional people. Whatever it is, the next thing you know, I just caused myself some problems. I just should have kept my mouth shut. Whatever the case is. And we create our own giants, but you see there's a perspective that we have. And I think we could, we could learn this by turning to the example of the giant whose shoulders we stand upon, Jesus Christ, because a lot of the things that we deal with, these giants in our lives... It has to do with our past. We struggle daily with our past. You know, we're told in the scriptures that we're, we, we are obligated. It's not an option. We are obligated to forgive. Whether it's one another in the congregation or it's people out there in the world, maybe a family member, maybe a stranger. As much as we don't like to hear it, I want to just plug my ears and I don't want to hear this. But we are obligated to forgive. That's amazing to me. I don't have an option. I don't have to reconcile, though. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells us that if you have a problem with somebody, you go to them, right? And you're supposed to forgive one another. But if they don't hear you, you bring somebody else with you. And then if you don't, they don't hear you again, he says, treat them as the heathen. What does that mean when he says treat them as the heathen? It means I am obligated to forgive the transgression, but if the other party has no culpability in what they've done in their part, I have no obligation to reconcile. Now some people might think, that's not Christian. Oh yes it is. Do the study on it. You don't have to reconcile. Is it best to? Absolutely. Is it always possible? Not in this life. Not in this life, it's not. That's, that's sad but true. But you see, our Savior, and this is not a dig on Him, this is to His credit. Over here in Hebrews chapter 12, I want to show us something that, remind us of something that He didn't have that we deal with and we struggle with. Now we know that the Scriptures tell us that our Lord and Savior was flesh and blood, and he was tempted in all manners such as we are. There's not one thing. Now, he lived in a Roman society. 
If we think that our society is worse than that society back there in Rome, study the debaucheries of Rome. They're pretty bad. He walked in that daily. He preached in it. He was ridiculed by it. Ultimately, he was slayed by it. You talk about giants in your path. He slayed them daily. But here's what Jesus never experienced in life. The one thing that he never experienced, it's mind-boggling to me, in verse 1 of 12. Therefore, we also, now he's coming out of the, the famous um, Hall of Faith chapter, the, the, the matriarchs and patriarchs of our faith. So when he's bringing it back, he's saying, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run the, with endurance the race that is set before us looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, notice his perspective. We don't think that Jesus, when he walked in this flesh, when he, when he finally came to that realization of who he was, I don't know when it happened. Maybe it was there to some degree the whole time. I don't know. I can't answer that question. I don't know the answer to that question. But when he did, did he not think to himself, I want to be back at the right hand of my father because it was so magnificent. I can't wait to get back there. So he laid aside every opportunity to fail. He counted as nothing to him because he knew what was lying ahead, what he had before. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the Father. What did Jesus not have that we do? He didn't have a past life of sin. He never gave himself the opportunity to deal with the past. We got to quit making our own giants. Looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The one thing he didn't have was a sinful past. You know, that old man that we have that was buried at baptism. Is he dead yet? I don't know the old man and he's dead yet. He's dying. But when I'm perfected, then I can say that he's completely dead. You see what I'm getting at. We stand on the shoulders of a giant, a good one. So we have to, in verse 3, for consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Anybody find themselves getting discouraged in this life? I think if we're going to be honest with ourselves, maybe it's just time to time that we find ourselves getting discouraged. Hopefully we don't stay there. But there are things that discourage us, and, and that's okay. We just can't, uh, we can't allow ourselves to stay in that, in that position here. Number 40, significant trials. Listed over 50 times in the Scriptures. I submit to you, though, 40 is not the number. 40 is not the significant number. Is it a significant number? Absolutely it is. 
But there's a number here that's in the backdrop that took me some time to consider. And I'm going to get to that in just a second. But there are some stories in here. You know, back there in Hebrews chapter 11, the, the, the hall of faith. You know, people of faith, all these people that are listed here, are also very, very familiar with failure, with the giants in their lives. There's not one of these people in the hall of faith that was a, that was a perfect human being. Somehow they suffered. They created their own giants. They lived in fear sometimes. Moses lived in the wilderness for 40 years because he murdered somebody. Was it intentional? I don't think it was premeditated because he found himself coming on a circumstance, but he shed somebody's blood and took their life. You don't think that that plagued that man for the rest of his life? He'd had to deal with his past. But not everything that we go through in this life, whether it's self-inflicted or something that comes out of left field, is meant for our demise. And I want to encourage you today that you take those trials, you take those tribulations, you slay those giants, and you make it work for you to be a better person. That's what the trials are about. Now, there are some very significant people in the Scriptures here regarding the number 40 that I want to briefly mention here in Joshua chapter 5 and some circumstances. Joshua chapter 5, we're told that because of Israel's disobedience, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Every day, or a year for every day, in which they were disobedient, or vice versa. So, essentially, the nation of Israel were grounded by their father for 40 years. If you ever think about that. So my kids always tell me, how long am I grounded? I don't know, Israel's grounded for 40 years. I'll let you know when I'm done being mad. <laughs> I'll let you know sometime. So this number 40 here in the book of Joshua, I'm not going to turn there, you can just write it in your notes, was symbolic of their wanderings, their chastisement in the wilderness. In other words, their trials and tribulations is what it was, it was significant of. In Genesis chapter 7, don't have to turn there. God allowed it to rain 40 days and 40 nights. You can't imagine Noah. I can, I can only see, I only put my, my own personality into Noah because that's what we tend to do with biblical characters sometimes. I could, I, could, I could just think about talking to people. Did you put that pitch like God told us to? You sure you did that just right? I'd be worried about it. I don't want any leaks in this ark, you know. Did you put that animal there? These animals aren't going to get together. Are we doing everything right? I could just see myself pacing back and forth in this ark while the, while the winds and the rain and the waves beat against that ark. We don't think that there was some sort of trepidation in them. You see, life is a walk of faith. And faith only comes through experience. And it's only through the trials of our faith in which it's validated. So he has to allow the trials to happen to us. 40 days and 40 nights was symbolic of the storms of life. Some of us are going through some of those, whether it's health, marital issues, particular sin. We find ourselves in the storms of life sometimes. It's part of life. Numbers 14, 27 through 35, you know, for 40 years, 
it says that God was like an enemy to Israel. This distal relationship from their father, from their creator. 40 comes up again. Jonah went to Nineveh. Didn't want to because he knew that the grace and the mercy of, of the Lord would eventually forgive Nineveh had they only repented. And they did. For 40 days and 40 nights, all the men, women, children, and the beast of Nineveh fasted. Guess what God did? He forgave them. 40 days of anxiety and trepidations over their self-inflicted giants, the, the challenges that they brought to themselves. One of my favorite ones, the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua. The men of Israel were told to carry the ark into the water to pass over the Jordan in the springtime. They were being pursued by an enemy. Do you remember the story? The priest took the ark, and you don't have any idea what the Jordan is like in the spring? It's not a calm, docile stream. It's, it's, it's very torrential. It gets very raging. It gets very dangerous. And here's God telling them, saying, you want to be delivered from your enemy? You want your giant to leave you alone? Get in the water. Is that not completely and utterly counterintuitive to us as human beings to get into the water? He says, just get an ankle deep. Not me, I'm thinking, uh-uh. How many of us would just so easily get into that water? I don't know that I would. Hope I would. But he says, if you want to be a, a part of a miracle and deliverance in your life, you have to be a participant. Get in the water. That's what he told him. It takes effort on our part. Probably one of my, my favorite examples in the scriptures of somebody who, who suffered, um, and I'm not, I'm not going to get to that uh, just yet, but, well, you know, why not? That's what, we, can we have a time check? Let me see which way I'm going to go with this. 30 minutes, okay, okay. Let's do this. For the town of Nineveh, after their 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, day 41 came. Day 41. The number 41 is a significant number for the church of God because 41 pictures your deliverance. Have you ever thought about that? Now we take a look at all these other people. Examples of Joshua and Israel, Noah, his family, the 40 years in which God was angry with Israel and became to them an enemy, 41 always arrives. It's only for a time. We want to talk about the number 40, and that's great. I understand that. But in the backdrop here is the promises. It's number 41. And that's why I say there's no such thing as a giant 
that will ever live over 40 because eventually whatever it is, the trial you're suffering with, whatever the trepidations or anxieties that you have, the sickness, whether it's in this life or the next, it's going to come to an end. It's not forever. And that's sometimes how the church of God or people in God's church find themselves in a desperate situation because guess what? We don't always see light at the end of the tunnel because we're caught up in what's, what's going on in the moment. Anybody else like me? Here's the way I always looked at hope. Maybe this is off, but... Any you guys ever watch Looney Tunes? Those cartoons? I can remember watching those religiously every day before the school bus got there. I'd have to beat feet to, to, to beat the bus because I was busy watching Bugs Bunny. Or uh, what's his name? Um, what's, that, what's that big old scarecrow? Not the scarecrow, the great big rooster. Foghorn Leghorn. That's my favorite, Foghorn Leghorn. But then we have Wiley Coyote and the Roadrunner. Remember those guys? You had this wolf that was always pursuing this Roadrunner. And there was this one cartoon in which, of course, the Roadrunner always outran this, this guy, this, this wolf, the coyote, I mean. And uh, the Roadrunner goes and grabs himself some paint, paints these railroad tracks in the sand. And he comes up, brings it right up to this mountain wall, this big, this tall edge. And he paints a tunnel, right? And he paints a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. And here, here comes the coyote running through there and right into that wall. Sometimes that's what hope feels like to us. You see a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel, and the next thing you know, you slam right back into another wall. You ever experienced that before? But be patient because 41 always comes. It always comes. Now, there's a lot of things that I could, I could go through here today. We could look at the example and some of the trials that, that people went through. But, you know, what the devil intends to bring you to demise, God uses to bring to your betterment. You see, Satan, Satan thinks he's got us all the time. He's called the accuser of the brethren for a reason. He will take your name, my name, and whoever else's name who belongs to Christ to the throne of God and say, aha, I've got them. Now they deserve death. That's his job. That's what he does. That's his whole station in life. His job is to get as many people from the church of God that he can and ruin their faith to get them to quit and to quit looking at this thing called hope and deliverance. He wants you to not to see it. He wants you to think it's a myth. He wants you to give up because you're going to have what he gave up. And he does not like you. He does not like us. So he wants to do nothing more, if nothing else, than to use our situations to discourage us and to get us to stop. Stop our advancement. Stop pursuing the kingdom of God. To discourage us, to get into our minds, to hold us back, to destroy us. Abaddon, the destroyer, that's what his name is, one of his many names. The Apostle Paul went through a lot of trials, whipped 40 stripes, save for one in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. In that particular verse of scriptures, there's a little bit of debate of whether or not how many stripes he got. Some people say the 40 minus 1 meant 39, but actually it meant he would have gotten 41 but they only gave him 40. I'm not going to speak about that dogmatically, but there's different ways to look at it. 
So God did not allow his trial to go on forever. You want to talk about somebody who really went through hardships that were no fault of his own and how God used his circumstances to encourage us? Anybody ever reread uh, the story recently of Joseph? You remember Joseph? Remember his life? You know, eventually he became a very prominent man. But there was a time where he spent 13 years in prison. You remember that story? He was accused of, of rape. He had, didn't want anything to do with it. But uh, uh, what's her name? I can't remember her name. Grabbed his garment, had a piece of garment, said, here's the evidence, he raped me. 13 years in prison that man spent for something he did not do. What did God do? You see, anybody in those circumstances like Joseph, you know what they could have done? Oh, woe is me. How bad are things? What did, he, what, what did Joseph do? He started a prison ministry. He started a prison ministry. And eventually, that prison ministry got him out of prison. You know what's ironic about these set of verses about Joseph? Go back and read it. His trials start, let's see here, I want to make sure I get this right. Back in Genesis 39. Really gets bad in chapter 40. Really gets bad in chapter 40. Chapter 41. He's delivered. Chapter 41 pictures his deliverance. So I would submit to you that while we're busy looking at the number 40, and we shouldn't ignore it, it's quite significant, that's not the number God really wants to use to encourage us. It's the one he doesn't list. It's 41. It is 41. In 1 Samuel, chapter 17, Anybody remember the story of David and Goliath? Remember that story? Little shepherd boy. Teenager. Most people considered him a nothing, a nobody. People laughed at him. And for 40 days, there was a giant who stood there between the armies of God and he ridiculed them and he mocked them. He mocked the living God. And what did everybody else do? You've got mighty men of valor here, warriors. And they're looking at this giant as he's walking back and forth, saying, come on out, guys. Where is your God? Come out and fight me if you've got a God that's so powerful. Where is he? Mocking the Creator. And what did the warriors do? Oh, who's going to fight him? You mean to tell me after everything that Israel had been through, through all the numbers of 40 that they lived through, and they realized the number 41, that somebody didn't get out on the field? That boggles my mind. We have the account here, and there's some things that we can, we can learn from this. In verse 17, then Jesse said to his son David, Take now for your brothers and 
ephah of his dried grain, these ten loaves, and run to your brothers at the camp, and carry these ten cheeses to the captain of their household, and see how your brothers fare, and bring back the news of them. A, 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 we call it go for it. They're a go for it. Gopher, right? A messenger. David, okay, I'll go, I'll go check things out, no problem. So he goes out there. Now Saul and they all of the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. So David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with a keeper, and took the things and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the camp as the army was going out to fight and shouting uh, for the battle. And Israel and the Philistines had drawn up for, for array, army against him. And David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper to the army and came and greeted his brothers. And this is where it gets very, very interesting because this is where David starts to get involved in this, this narrative here. And there's some points here that we can learn from this number 40 and 41 and exactly how we can combat the giants that are in our lives by just looking at the example of David. The first thing that we come across here, and if I turn to some other scriptures, maybe I'll just reference them today because I don't want you guys to get fatigued going back and forth um, because there's a lot of things that go with this. The first point on how to combat our giants is found here in verse 23, 17 through 23. I just read most of it. Then as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines, and he spoke according to them the same words, so David heard them. The number one way in which we can destroy or slay the giants, and I'm talking about metaphorically, I'm not talking about going out and punching somebody in the face. So don't misunderstand me. I don't want to get anybody in trouble. I'm talking about the spiritual combat that we find ourselves in. What's the number one rule in destroying your enemy? You have to know him. You have to know his tactics. You have to know what he's about. We have some, some scriptures we can, we can turn to. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. He is the God of this world, and he has influenced the nations of this world. He certainly has America. He certainly has influenced our country. When we're entertaining the things in our laws that we are now, I think maybe some things might be changing. I don't know. But you see, when you know your enemy, there's a perspective that we ought to have. And this is the quote here. You see, we can't be pessimistic when we're going through our trials. Don't be pessimistic, stay positive. The pessimist sees difficulty in every opportunity. The optimist sees opportunity in every difficulty. Now, those words are very, very easy to say. They're very difficult in application. I wish that I could have done this perfectly in my life. I haven't. But neither did Paul. Neither did the peoples in Hebrews chapter 11. The only one that ever did it perfectly was Jesus Christ. So you have to know your enemy. You have to know who it is. You see, the prescription for combating our enemy, Satan, is pretty simple. He only has as much power and influence in our lives as we give him. I don't know if we ever thought about it that way. But in James, uh, the book of James here in chapter 4, it's pretty simple. If you want to fell your enemy, all you have to do is resist him. 
You see, Satan is a very powerful spiritual being. But he has no authority in our lives that we don't give to him. And if we don't give him authority in our lives, he can't stay in our lives. It is by permission only. So if you resist him, the scriptures say, well, maybe he'll leave you alone. Maybe he'll quit pestering you. No, James says, if you resist him, he will flee. He doesn't have an option. Don't give him, don't even crack the door for him. Don't leave him, don't leave him any kind of opening because if you give him a crack, he'll put his foot in. And pretty soon you know it, you're creating your own giants that you can't fight very easily. Putting yourself in situations it's hard to get out of. Very difficult, this life sometimes. So many different scriptures we could go to. We'll keep reading down through here in Genesis. We'll just read 24 and 25 because in this we find our second point. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man? Who has come up, surely he has come up to defy Israel, and it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich the, his, with great riches, will give him his daughter and give him his father's house, exemption from taxes in Israel. So they're bartering now. They're bartering now. If anybody will fight this guy, you're going to get all kinds of riches, you're going to do this, but hey, hey, king, how about you do it yourself? You're the king. Why are you getting someone else to, to, to bid to do your own? your own work here, King. The bottom line is, if we find ourselves in situations that we are trepidatious and anxious in, the lesson of David here is simply to smash fear in the mouth. Don't let fear become a part of your personality. Easier said than done. But here's, here's how we do that, okay? Something my dad taught me years ago. And oftentimes when we think of courage, when you think, let's just think about David for a second. When you think of courage, would you think that David is, is pretty courage, courageous, courageous teenager? Do we think that he wasn't afraid? Do we think that David did not have any doubt in his mind as he walked out onto the battlefield? What would happen? You don't think there was any doubt in his mind? You see, um, courage is the resistance to fear, mastery of fear, not the absence of it. And that's what makes somebody so courageous. It's when your body and when your mind is telling you to run away, to get out of there, to hide, something bad's going to happen. It's when you say, nah, no, that's not how this situation's going to end. You walk to it, not away from it. That is so counterintuitive to this flight or fight emotion that we've been given by our Creator. You cannot run from fear. Running does not make things any better. Psalms chapter 23. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to because it's one of my favorite sets of scriptures. Oh, by the way, David wrote it. Psalms chapter 23. It's a shame sometimes that the only time that we hear this scripture read is during funerals. But in this Psalms chapter 23, David brings about a perspective that he learned, I think, from this battle. I really do. Can I speak about that dogmatically? No. 
But I really think David learned a lot here from facing this giant. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And I can almost picture David as he had his sling out and as he picked up those five smooth stones, as he's walking out to face Goliath, as he's slinging the sling, facing somebody who was in the infantry, not somebody who was a slinger. You know, there's five different types of people that are lined up for battle in Israel. Somebody who carried a sling could kill their enemy with one shot from up to 200 yards away. Now here this Philistine comes out, an infantryman, bewildered by the fact that David's walking out on the battlefield with this, swing, this sling, and I can almost see David slinging this thing. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I could just see him doing this, visioning it in my mind. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his namesake. And you know the best part here, the best part of all this, he starts it right here. And you've been here in your life. A lot of you have been here in your life. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Anybody been there before? All these, all these ministries, these Christian ministries want, want to get everybody to think, these health and prosperities, that Christians, all they have to do is leap mountaintop to mountaintop. And if you don't have a smile on your face all the time, you have no faith. And if you're going through trials, it must be because you have no faith. That's nonsense. David was about to face this trial against this giant, not because of anything he did wrong, but because the giants that we face in our lives prepares for bigger giants. It's preparing us for something else. We're being prepared for something. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. It's your rod and your staff that comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You ever really thought about the significance of that scripture? You prepare a table before me in the very presence of my enemies. Don't ever count your enemy out because they might be your friend tomorrow. That one day you're in battle with this person and the next day you're at the bargaining negotiation table that God can bring any circumstance in our lives and turn it around for the betterment of us. And David understood that. I think it's something that I don't get all the time, but David did. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Notice his perspective. It's about dwelling in the house of the Lord forever, no matter what valley he found himself in. Goodness and mercy that comes from the Lord will follow him all the days in his life because he knew something better was coming. Trials, do they matter? You better believe they matter. Am I telling you to just marginalize and forget about the things and somehow just ignore them? No. I'm not saying that either. What I'm saying is, though, is we just have to have courage a little bit of courage goes a long way in this life. Sometimes it has to be developed in us. Smash this thing called fear in the mouth. 26 through 29 here. Let's just go there. And David spoke to the man who stood by him, saying, 
What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Notice his attitude. He got it. You had all these, these warriors and all these people in the army and the military that are, that are, that are battle-hardened. And then you got this shepherd boy looking at them saying, who is he to defy the armies of the living God? They didn't get it. He did. Someone who just shepherds sheep? Who is David? I mean, that's what they're saying. Who are you? And the people answered him in this manner saying, so shall it be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David. And he said, Why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and your insolence of your heart, and you have come down here to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Is there not a cause? Is there a cause to fight in our lives? What have I done now, he says. All I've done is I've seen a need and I've come in here to fulfill that need. When everyone else is running, I'm not going to run anymore. You know, what, you know what he did? Essentially what David did sometimes, we're reminded of the Old Testament, specifically um, a, a, a few different chapters really, but he embraced his calling. That's all he did. He embraced his calling. So we find ourselves going through our trials and tribulations. The best thing that we can do is re-engage. If we've disengaged, get back into it. Embrace your calling. We have a mighty God. He is the same God that delivered Israel through that Jordan and out of Egypt. He has not changed. He's still the same. And somehow we think that when we're going through trials, I'm speaking for myself when I say we, and we're going through trials and tribulations, we think that it's too much for God to handle. Nothing we face is too much for God. There's nothing He can't handle. Sometimes we put our own insecurities on our Creator. You ever notice how we do that? We get, we get fearful, anxiety, we get doubtful, and we tend to transfer those emotions and those ideas onto our God and just sit back going, have you not seen what I did in times past? Do you think I'm weaker today than I was yesterday? Do you think that whatever you're going through is too much for me? Sometimes I think that's why he puts a lot on us. That we can remember. You know, it's not we who deliver ourselves from anything. It's God that delivers. He delivers us. Only him. You know, T.D. Jakes, one of my favorite, I guess, TV pastors. I don't agree with his theology. I don't. But if, you, if you're on, a friend of mine on Facebook, you know, I post a lot of his things on Facebook. But uh, he had mentioned Psalms 91, a beautiful psalm. And uh, he talked about this snare of the fowler. Anybody remember what the snare of a fowler is? how people would catch birds in the Old Testament. They'd set these nets up and they'd lay them on the ground. And they'd wait till a flock of birds came by 
and they would take this net and they would, it was spring-loaded by a couple different trees and they bent down to the ground. When a flock of birds flew over, they would release this, this uh, rope and the trees would spring forward and it would capture and ensnare the birds. Impossible to get out of. And now we have this creature called Satan the devil that wants to be the fowler of us. And he wants us to believe that when we are caught in the snare of the fowler, that there is no hope for us. Now we can wiggle. We can try to manipulate our joints. We can do whatever we want to do to try to get out of this snare of the fowler, but we cannot unless God delivers us. So when we find our circumstances to be insurmountable, they're not. There's not. It just seems to be that way. Because there's one who is able and willing to deliver us from whatever it is that's caught us in this snare. You might be in this snare, but you're not of it. Remember that. You're not of the snare. You might be in it, but you're not of it. And you will get out of it through your creator. He continues down here in verse 30 through 33. Then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing. And these people answered him as the first ones did. So they're causing him to doubt. When the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail today because of him, of your servant, will go to fight the Philistines. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against the Philistine to fight him. You are a youth and a man of war, uh, and he a man of, of war from his youth. Tell the negative committee in your mind to take a seat. Don't let people tell you that your circumstances are insurmountable. Because that's what they were doing to David. Now the reason why the Bible reveals to us that we go through trials is found right here in the next set of verses, okay? So we have to become deaf to words of doubt and negativity. We have to prepare to fight as Christians. You want to you want, you survive? You want to get out of your tribulation? Fight back. David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock. I went after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when I arose, it rose against me. I caught it by the beard and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like the one of them, seeing he's defiled the armies of the living God. Now here we have David, this little shepherd boy out there. Here comes a lion. He's got to slay the lion. He's got to grab this lamb out of the lion's mouth. He had every opportunity to say, God, why are you doing this to me? I can't, I can't help this lamb. So he gets through that trial. Now here comes a bear. Lord, I just, a lion, now a bear? What are you doing to me? I can't do this. But guess what? The bear went too. And sometimes we fail to see that symbolically or metaphorically, these lions and bears that come our way are preparing us to fight the giants. He was being prepared his whole life to fight a bigger, more challenging dilemma. And God is his toughening David. 
In this life, he's toughening us up because he knows trials and tribulations will come. So when things happen, and it seems like a whole slew of things always happen, this happens to us, and this happens to us, and this happens to us, it's not for naught. It's for a purpose. The trials are for a purpose. Not only do they validate our faith, but eventually they will validate the faith of other people of whom when we embrace our calling and the end of things and we help out, we will be able to sympathize with people because every high priest is taken from this life because they are flesh and blood and have suffered in this life that they might sympathize with other people. Hebrews chapter 5. What are we being prepared for? Participation in God's kingdom. How are we going to help other people that live in a world of hurt and pain and trouble if we haven't walked through the valleys of shadows of deaths? Brethren, sometimes we look at these problems that we have these insurmountable things that are coming our way, and we fail to realize there's a greater purpose for them because God is preparing you for something. He's bringing us through all this to validate what he said, to get us to recognize his promises because we are going to have a very intricate part in God's kingdom of helping other people that have suffered like we have. Why me, God? Why am I going through this? Why not you? Because I've got a purpose for you. You see, God can repurpose our past. That giant of our past. He can repurpose what we're going through now and utilize it for something that's for later. I'm not saying we don't, we don't have some worries and anxieties and things like that. I get it. So we got to, in other words, to realize this, we have to step on the field and fight. We have to do it. And that's what David did for some closing scriptures here, verse 46. Let's just go to, yeah, 46. This day the Lord will deliver you into the hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. This is David, or uh, Goliath talking to David. And I will give the carcass, no, reverse that, Philistines of the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth and all the that may know that there is a God in Israel. So he's, he's standing back on the field. He's getting on the field and he's fighting. Then all the assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into your hands. So it was when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, and David hurried and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in the bag and took out a stone. And when he slung it, it struck the Philistine in his forehead so that the stone sank in his forehead and he fell on his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him, but there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath, killed him, cut off his head with it, and the Philistines saw their champion was dead. They ran. Get on to the field and fight back. That's the lesson. That's what David taught us through this. That through his circumstances, 
that this giant that stood in the path of Israel in victory taunted them and tasked them for 40 days and 40 nights relentlessly, mocked their creator, told them there's no way that God was going to deliver them, and it took a shepherd boy to embrace his calling, to recognize that the trials of the lions and the bears and the smaller giants that came his way was for the purpose of preparing him for the biggest giant he could ever face, Goliath. Brethren, I understand that this life is full of trials and trepidations. Got a few of my own, so I'm not criticizing. Bottom line is, the lesson of David has to linger and resonate within our minds if we're going to learn the lessons and make value of these trials that we find ourselves in. Because in those trials, there's tremendous value. It's called experience. And one day, God is going to call upon that experience if we simply just embrace our calling prepare to step on the field and fight. So what are we going to do from here on out when a trial comes? I submit to you that it's a simple task of stepping onto the field. Let's go slay some giants.